I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Left the teenagers to run their business for them. I mean, I'm just lucky I married someone interesting. You really have to be careful. Palookaville basically just means the city of losers. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Nostalgia is bittersweet. Along with warm memories comes a pinprick of loss. And that, just like the ones I used to know feeling, is more or less a built-in feature of the holiday season. The cartoonist and illustrator Seth is a master at distilling that particular longing. He captures the ache of memory when he describes the fleeting summers of his teen years in his latest book, Palookaville No. 24. Seth opens the program today. Pandemics and ice storms, those two epic events provided inspiration for the writers Rebecca Rosenblum and Elizabeth Ruth. Our contributor Ryan B. Patrick talks with the writers about being locked in and locked down in a half an hour from now. And the young adult novelist Jen Ferguson closes today's program. Ryan spoke with her about her new book, Those Pink Mountain Nights. Plus, Rick Mercer answers the Proust questionnaire. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. When he was a teenager, the cartoonist Seth worked at an inn on Lake St. Clair in southern Ontario. The experience of those summers, the people, and the lessons that come with a first job is recreated in his latest book, Palookaville 24. In words and pictures, Seth captures the ache of the past and how, for all of us, experiences dissolve and even the most memorable moments are destined to be gone forever. That sense of elegy underpins much of Seth's work. Along with his graphic novels and autobiographies, he's a designer, an illustrator, and his models have been exhibited in museums. Seth joins me today from Guelph, where he lives in a house he has named Inkwell's End. Hello, Seth. Hi, Ali. How are you doing? I'm great. Nice to have you uh, uh, back here. I, I chatted with you about Clyde fans a number of years ago. Happy to talk about this book. But before we get into this book... Since I've mentioned it, why did you name your house Inkwell's End? Well, you know, if it's one thing, if you knew me, you know that um, I'm not shy about um, appearing to be a little too precious or uh, or pretentious. I think I've always kind of lived my <laughs> life with a desire to uh, live in a grand manner. So I've always loved whenever you encountered any famous person from the past, any writer or artist or whatever. And they had, you know, a house with a name. I think Alexander Wolcott's house was called Wits End. There were quite a few of these ends. It seems like just a, you know, a bit of a um, a trope. So um, when the time came when I got a house, I knew I would be naming it. Um, it took me a little bit, but I finally came up with Inkwell's End simply because it's a bit of a pun, bit of a joke. Um, I work with ink as a, an artist and... Um, and I wanted it to be slightly humorous. You know, when you do this kind of thing, 
it is awfully precious. So you want to be, uh, you know, making a bit of a joke of yourself at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it is it is exactly the kind of thing that I wanted in life, a house with a name. So I know that Palookaville is kind of an umbrella term that you use for your work. Can you explain it a little bit more? Well, back in the 80s, uh, when um, alternative comics, for lack of a better title, came up, the alternative comics were literally just a group of cartoonists who suddenly had, um, I suppose you'd say, literary pretensions, trying to make novels in the comics form. And everybody, you know, was doing their own little comic book. And most of the titles that people chose were either a bit surreal or a bit... um, tongue-in-cheek or something with a slight negative spin on it. So for me, Palookaville was simply, I wanted to you know, create a kind of a blanket title that suggested a place. I certainly wanted it to sound old-fashioned too. And Palookaville is, of course, a, you know, a famous old uh, saying from the past. But I wanted it to have a slightly negative spin too. I mean, Palookaville basically just means like the city of losers. Why the 24? Why 24? We're just up to 24 now. There have been 24 volumes. There are three sections to number 24. Um, So let's start by talking about that first section, which is a continuation of your autobiography called Nothing Lasts. What happens in in this installment? Yeah, it's funny. You know, the way that I'm writing this, this whole exercise was created to be not too calculated. So... I wanted to write about my own life, but I didn't want to turn it into the kind of thing where I sat down and wrote incredibly complicated notes and interviewed my friends to see what really happened or blah, blah, blah. I wanted it to be very much a recounting of my life from my memory. So when I'm writing the, the memoir, if I remember something I've forgotten, I feel completely comfortable in just saying, oh, wait a minute, I forgot to mention blah, 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 mm. and go back a little bit or cover ground twice or However it comes out, I wanted to have a, a, a freeness to it. And the way I decided to structure that simply was to just tell the story based on places I've been in my life. So, you know, I start with the house I was born in. And by uh, volume 24 of Palookaville, we've got to my first real job, which is in this, um, this inn on the lake down in southwestern Ontario. This was a really um, central point in my life. I, you know, it's your first experience of kind of being out in the world as a sort of an adult and interacting with people in a world outside of just school. It turns into a bit of a coming of age story and more of that in part two, because it, it involves a kind of a romantic affair as well. But we just get to the edge of that at the end of the story. Mm. Um, but mostly what I'm trying to do here is to recreate as close as I can with words and pictures the sense of being at this place. So I pause a lot to just talk about the sensations of working there or the area, what the area itself felt like or the people. I'm not so worried about plot. I mean, obviously in your own life, there isn't a plot, although we certainly make up a story. We put it into a sequence. But mostly I'm trying to just get the feeling of what this was like. And and this is all expressed through memory. And memory, as, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's not very accurate. I'm 61 now. So I'm talking about things that happened when I was 19 years old. And what's interesting to me is how much I've forgotten. And so in the story, I try to keep that in mind too. If I don't remember things, I usually bring it to the fore rather than try and, and smooth over it and act like I remembered it. That's what I found really compelling about that first section 
this idea of memory, because as you say, it was a memorable job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but when you go to explore your memories, you're like, wait, what, what did I do that entire time? Yeah. And, and, and no, I, I have the same remarkable. thing. The first job is it's seminal. It's a time of growth as a young person. And, and then, you know, as you say, paradoxically, once it's in your past, you forget much of it. And you have these, I, I wrote a memoir uh, last year and it was like an incredible exercise going back and trying to remember. So mm-hmm. I found the way you write almost, you know, freeing to sort of say, oh, wait a second. I'm not sure if that did happen. That might have happened. Oh, I don't remember what happened. Oh, wow. That's a great There's a tendency, uh, a tendency to fix things up. I mean, it's the natural impulse when you're telling a story to make connections, even if you don't remember them. So I'm trying to hard not to do that, to fill in details that I don't actually remember. The thing about that that's so interesting too, is it throws all your memories into doubt. Yeah. I think about memory a lot, but that's the one that really gets me is like, just how much credence can I give to any of it? Mm-hmm. What I really liked also was some of these characters, you know, you mentioned the inn, it is, it's called Cove Inn on Lake St. Clair in, in Southern Ontario. And uh, you worked with a lot of people, two people really stood out, the head cook and interestingly, the lounge mm-hmm. singer. Can you tell us about those two men? Um, these were two older men that I encountered working there. and. Um, Jefferson, who is the uh, the head chef, was like uh, an older man from Detroit, and who had like a lot of a lot of life experience. You know, I uh, when I think back on him, he was a fascinating character, a big figure, full of personality. And when I was nineteen years old, I would say I was exactly the opposite. You know, you're it's like what life experience have you had? It's funny to be around somebody like that, and they're talking to you. And the thing that I come away from thinking back on it is how little I had to add to the conversation, but how much Mm -hmm. I've recalled um, the experience of being with him. He was certainly in his 70s. He could have even been in his 80s. The other fellow, on the other hand, was the lounge singer. And he was younger. He was probably in his 50s, I bet then. But the kind of lounge singer that, you know, you don't encounter anymore, I don't think, because he was like a sort of an off-brand version of the Rat Pack. And he was a good singer. You know, the funny thing about it is, as a 19-year-old, the last thing I wanted to listen to was some guy who was singing the easy listening of the 60s and 70s. Mm. But now, I would kill to go back and watch those performances. Uh, And he was a great entertainer, but he was a character as well. And somewhere in there, even as a teenager, I sensed a certain bruised ego at having to appear as the headliner in a kind of an inn in the middle of Hicksville. Again, these are people that you feel like you're on the periphery of their stories. Ultimately, the funny thing is, this would be a much more interesting book if it was about either of those men. Hmm. But I have to work with the material I've got. Right. And, and that I kind of makes the book so interesting, too, because the material you got, you're like, can I rely on this material? You, you know, you're, <laughs> There's that um, the boat you worked on on the lake for the Natural Resources Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're measuring the number of uh, fish, you're spending hours in a boat with one person, you talk for hours, and then you can't really remember what you yeah. spoke about for all those hours. It's, a, it's you know, the, the funny thing is, um, if you're a person who likes to talk, and I do, um, I'm a very social person, your life is made up of like memorable conversations, except that you don't actually remember the conversations. You just remember the experience of like, you know, the great times you had with these friends or that particular person you went out for drinks. And again, in the comic, there was a great tendency to just make that up. 
let's do three pages of me talking on the lake with my friend. And I, you know, I can write some dialogue. That's not a problem. But it seemed more um, potent to actually just put the empty word balloons in to, to bring to the fore the fact that you don't remember this stuff. What you do remember is um, the underlying element of a conversation. And in this case, what I remembered most from this friend, Brian, was the, the kindness he, he displayed towards me as a, a slightly older teenager. That's what's remained, not the mm. conversations themselves. So I mentioned there's three parts to the book. The central mm -hmm. part of the book, or the part in the center, is about a puppet show that you created, and you filmed that for the NFB about a comic uh, named Albert Batch. And you include speaking of the uh, speaking of the past, you include the DVD at the back of the book. I don't even want to share how difficult it was to find a way to play that DVD. I was like, <laughs> what what happened to all our DVD players? Where's my laptop that had? Um, tell me what that experience was like for you that that puppet show. Yeah, well, I'm first off, as I would say, I even hesitate to call it a puppet show. I'm not a puppeteer. It's it is mm -hmm. in the realm of a puppet show. I am moving sort of puppet things around and talking. But um the experience was an eye-opener in that um I think when I came up with the idea to do this, and this was many years ago, certainly back, I mean, this is something that goes back a couple of decades, the idea. And then eventually, you know, finishing up the making all the little objects and then having it filmed by Luke Chamberlain, the director, it was a long process. And it was a process that taught me I will never be making any more puppet shows. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it's done. But it, it certainly made me realize I'm not a performer. There's a reason why I sit in a studio by myself every day and draw and write and, and send that out into the world uh, without me. I didn't like the pressure of performing. It was it was complicated. And thank God the director was there to like make it all seamless. The, th the third and final section of the book is five stories from your sketchbook. And they are stories that you based on the names of flowers. So explain to us how you went about creating those. Yeah, well, these are stories from my sketchbook. And so they were not created with a great deal of calculation. Um, mostly what I use sketchbooks for are uh, just to explore ideas. It's just for me. And I find that this is usually where you learn uh, to do things you wouldn't naturally do. Just because when you're only working on projects that are either you know you're going to publish them or someone's hired you to do them, you tend to be more conservative. Um, you do what you know will work. Uh, it's risky to fiddle around with ideas that are going to fail if you're on a deadline. So in the sketchbook, you can always have the wonderful chance that maybe they just, they'll work out or they won't. And so these are uh, exactly that sort of thing. I was just writing, I sometimes write lists in my sketchbook and uh, I had a couple of old flower catalogs around from the sixties for uh, nurseries. And I was just writing down the names of the flowers because they were really nice evocative names like golden autumn or uh, green ice or things like this. And after I wrote them down, I just thought, well, why not pick out five of these uh, names and use them as a title for a story and just dive in. Don't think about it. Don't give yourself time to write a story. Just immediately take whatever comes to mind. And, um, and Palookaville exists essentially uh, for me to publish work that isn't overly calculated. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the book itself, I mean, those three sections, you've got like a memoir that I'm working on uh, over a long period of time. You've got like this puppet show, which is unconventional for me. And then you've got work from my sketchbook. 
Uh, Palooka bills are always kind of like that. It's just whatever rises to the surface of, uh, of the body of stuff I'm working on. Mm. I had a final question for you. You were awarded the uh, Ordre des Arts and des Lettres in 2022 by the French government. That's essentially like being knighted. Mm-hmm. What, were your, what were your thoughts when, when that call came in? Well, I actually got a letter and I, at first, it, and it was in French and I don't speak French. So I set it aside, not really even understanding what it was. But then I pulled out Google Translate and then I was hmm. more perplexed. I was like, is this for real? A. And B, uh, why me? But C, of course, was um, happiness. I mean, I was uh, I was thrilled by it, um, mostly because, as I said, you know, I'm I'm a person who likes um, formality, pretension, a mannered kind of quality. The idea of being presented with a medal and being given some sort of a title—that's dream material. Well, congratulations on Thank on you. receiving that, and it's a. Uh... Ordre des Arts and des Lettres, which is the Order of Arts and Letters. People can also Google that to see what that uh, recognition, uh, you know, is and what it would mean for mm-hmm. you. But uh, thanks for the chat today, Seth. Very, it's always very nice to speak to you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Ali. Seth is the author of most recently Palookaville Twenty Four. I spoke with him from his home in Guelph. The Rick Mercer Report ran for 15 successful years on CBC, and Rick crossed and recrossed the country countless times looking to connect with people and tell their stories. The laughs were many, and the program was a celebration of the country at its best. Rick recalls that time in his life in his latest book, The Road Years, a memoir continued. And here he is now answering our version of the Proust questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. Hmm... Uh, these days, Michael Crummy, Edward Rich, always, and recently I read Kate Beaton's book, um, Ducks, which is a graphic novel, which was a first for me, and she's a big favorite. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? I would like to have a musical ability, but if I could change anything, like physically, um, I'd like better lungs and better hearing. That's about it. What phrase do you most overuse? I catch myself saying 100% all the time and it drives me mental. What do you value most in your friends? I like a self-deprecating individual and I think most of my friends are. Uh, I love a sense of humor and thankfully most of them have that as well. On what occasions do you lie? To spare the cook's feelings. If you have a public life at all, you lie all the time because you're asked all the time, how was everything? How was your flight? How was your room? And you always say, fantastic, wonderful. What is your greatest regret? Uh, I was such a terrible student. I just didn't figure it out. So I essentially failed out of high school and I didn't go to university or trades college and I regret that. Although it worked out in the end, I was working. Um, but uh, that that option wasn't there for me because I was such a bad student was uh, probably my biggest regret. There was no reason other than just abject laziness on my part. What is your favorite occupation? 
These days, it's writing. I really enjoy the writing. Uh, I always wrote, but I was always performing as well. These days, I just pretty much write, and I, I enjoy that very much. Also, I've started growing potatoes. I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a farmer. My potato patch is about the size of a kitchen table, but it will be larger come the spring. What is your favorite journey? Heading home. I grew up just outside of St. John's, Newfoundland, so St. John's is the city, certainly, that I feel the most uh, at home in, although I've lived in Toronto for quite a while, you know, multiple decades, and I also feel home here. But yeah, staring at the ocean in Newfoundland, that's my ideal home place. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Obsessed with bitterness. When I meet a person that's just bitter, that's what I'm getting off them, I, uh, I only feel sympathy for them because I think it must be a terrible place to be. What is your principal defect? Procrastination, a lack of discipline in certain areas, which goes back to the procrastination. I can only function with a deadline. Left to my own devices, I'm, I'm ridiculous, I'm, I'm helpless, I'm like an infant on asphalt. So, yes, I would like to change that about myself. I think it's too late, and I don't have the energy, and I'll just keep putting it off. Where would you like to live? Well, I'm pretty fortunate because I get to spend time exactly where I would like to live, which is in my summer place, my cabin in Chapel Cove, Newfoundland. I don't live there, live there, but I get to spend enough time there. There's very little to do. There's the potato patch, there's keeping wood in the fire, in the wood stove, and there's writing in the shed, and just mucking about, doing odd little things. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Nothing on the schedule. Like a day or two where there's literally nothing, no obligations whatsoever. And I can fill up those days. I just don't lie there on the floor and stare at the ceiling. But the idea that there's nothing, that's, that's a great feeling. What is your greatest fear? Never in my life did I fear that democracy could fail. I just always thought it was foolproof. And now when I look around the world, I see it failing in certain places, the idea that it could fail here. That's a, that's a big one, that's a big fear. Personally, plunging to my death, maybe? Who are your favorite heroes in real life? Always the nurses. What is your greatest extravagance? I'm not an extravagant guy, so probably the cabin I built in Newfoundland which in theory is not wildly extravagant, but it's a little bit extravagant for a cabin. And like so many of these things, it got bigger and bigger as I went. My favorite part of the cabin is actually the shed. So it's not the cabin at all, even though the cabin is quite lovely, but it's just, a, you know, it's got a living room and a couple of bedrooms and a kitchen, and it's quite nice, but the shed is wicked. It's got a wood stove, it's got a big wood pile, it's got a workbench, it's got a high-speed internet hookup. It's great. Got TV lights. It's great. That was Rick Mercer answering the Proust questionnaire. His latest book is The Road Years, A Memoir Continued.
Carl Subban started to play hockey when he moved to Canada from Jamaica as a child. He's raised three NHL players, including P.K. Subban. Carl wrote the bestseller, How We Did It, about his philosophy as a parent, coach, and teacher. And now he's written a children's book, The Hockey Skates, illustrated by Maggie Zeng. It features a young PK waiting and waiting some more for his new skates to arrive so he can get out on the ice to play. Here is Carl Subban talking about the hockey skates. What inspired me to write it? Being uh, the dad or the hockey parent of, of three boys who sort of made it up uh, the hockey ladder, I, I do get a lot of questions. One of the answer that I love giving is that um, my boys had to learn to wait. You know, uh, they started out wearing used equipment. And every kid wants that new skates, the new hockey pants, the new stick. But with uh, PK, Malcolm, and Jordan, nothing was new. You know, in the story, PK had to wait. Every time the box came in the mail, it did not contain what he wanted. You know what I say? It contained disappointments, and that's what he needed. There's a difference between what you want and what you need. <laughs> How many times a day do you say to a young student, wait your turn, wait your turn, wait? It happens all the time. And so that's an important thing for kids to learn. And that's, that's something that PK learned how to do really well. He knew how to wait his turn. He knew that when it wasn't his time. He knew that he knew when it wasn't his turn. Even if he deserved the SO medal award, he knew that. Well, you know what? Some other kid's going to get it. It's a very, very important life lesson for kids to learn. And I, that's one of the characteristics of PK, I think, came out. And, and, and also for many other young people. But we, this book, The Hockey Skates, is shedding some light on it. The second inspiration came from uh, reading to my granddaughter. That's one of the things I loved. I love, I still do it, read, read to her and, and read with her. And I also did the same thing with my sons because I love to tell people that I picked up a book to read to them before I picked up the hockey stick to play with them. But I remember reading to my granddaughter, Angelina, and I read to her every day. Reading is so important. And in reading to her, she's sitting in my lap. So here we are developing this relationship, this connection. And she said to me one day after reading it, she goes, Grandpa, more, Grandpa, more. More, Grandpa, more. So I wanted to write a book that was in the spirit of that moment to get every young person to find what they love to do, but also to find the book they love to read and for mom and dad or the teacher or the coach to read it to them one more time. That was Carl Subban talking about his children's book, The Hockey Skates, illustrated by Maggie Zeng. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, I'm Wahini Bara, the author of This is Salvaged, and you are listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. This past fall, Ryan B. Patrick hosted a live event with the novelists Elizabeth Ruth and Rebecca Rosenblum. Sheltering in Place was the theme. Elizabeth Ruth's novel Semi-Detached is a mysterious story set during Toronto's 2013 ice storm. And Rebecca Rosenblum's memoir, The Days Are Numbered, is a diary of her pandemic lockdown experience from the vantage point of her densely populated downtown high-rise. Here's Ryan in conversation with Rebecca and Elizabeth. Rebecca, your book is set around that time of the pandemic. That's like 2020 to present day. How did the pandemic inspire your work? I mean, it, it was my work. It was my whole world when I was writing it. And I couldn't see past it. I was actually supposed to be writing a novel um, during this period. And the pandemic just kind of came and blotted everything else out until it was all I could see. It was still nominally writing that novel, but I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Still recovering. Uh, And Elizabeth, your book is based on a real event as well, but it takes us a few years back, like 2013. Uh, I think everyone remembers the ice storm in Toronto around that time. It was December. The ice and snow took out power lines, left like a million residents without power, killed about 27 people, and cost about $200 million in damages. So And you decide to set your book at this time. (laughs) Uh, Why did this event inspire your work? Well, I went for a walk with my family during the ice storm, which, you know, we really weren't supposed to do. Parks were closed and things were cordoned off. And we went to the Evergreen Brickworks to walk our dog. And we were the only people there. And all you could see, as far as the eye could see, was glittering, twinkling trees encased in ice. And the sound of ice snapping and crackling and somehow on that walk it was so magical and so beautiful and so perilous as ice can be and that was the initial inspiration i didn't begin writing for a few more years Uh, but that that's what started me okay um rebecca back to you so your book started out as a online diary of sorts it developed from a blog entry starting in march 2020 to january 2021 and this blog kind of captured your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions around the pandemic, and how your downtown Toronto neighborhood was affected. What was your mindset and your mind state at the time? It was kind of everything. Like, the book is really all over the place. I would say there are some very astute observations in this book, and there are some just absolute nonsense, Mm. just jokes (laughs) and uh, silliness. And it's interesting to if you if you do read the book, you'll see how little we knew at the beginning, like, yeah. like about masks, about vaccines, like what's a good idea? Maybe it's going to be over in three weeks. Like it's wild to go back to what we didn't know and also just what I didn't know. Right. And you live currently in the St. James neighborhood of Toronto. Can you describe for people who do not know that region or that area, what was it like? St. Jamestown is uh, the densest postal code in Canada. It's Sherburn Station, if you know Toronto, and just south of there. Um, it's kind of um, just a square kilometer, more or less, and it's um, all high-rises. It was created more or less intentionally to be kind of a landing pad 
uh, for a lot of new immigrants, refugees. There's a lot of social housing there, um, people who are transitioning from addiction or other kinds of problems. And there are also just people there who find it a convenient place to live. It's not very expensive. It's near a lot of things. Um, they are, they're definitely trying to, to gentrify it. There are some posher buildings there. It's an intense neighborhood, man. <laughs> Elizabeth, I want to touch on your book. Uh, your protagonist is named Laura. She is a real estate agent who is selling a house in Toronto. It's around 2013. Tell me more about Laura's journey in the book. Sure. Well, um, yes, there's a house at number two Condor in the east end of Toronto that she's preparing to sell. Um, she's 40. She's at a crossroads in her life. Um, she loves her job. She loves snooping in other people's lives and matching the right people to the right homes. But she is ambivalent about it. She grew up in Parkdale. Um, her mom cleaned houses to make money and made performance art. And so she finds herself very successful at something that she wonders, you know, am I contributing to the scarcity of affordable, safe housing in the city? And so she's grappling with the ethics of what she does, even as she loves what she does. And she's also desperate to become pregnant. So um, when the novel begins, she has gone against her partner's wishes and secretly had their last fertilized embryo implanted. So will she become pregnant? Will her marriage last? Um, that's a little bit about that. Right. There's definitely a lot to unpack in your book. You've got the um, two multiple timelines. You have the 2013, and then you go back to 1944. And then you layer in a supernatural element of ghosts and stuff like that. So tell us more about this, the ghost element of the book. Right. Before I tell you about the ghost, though, that there are these two narratives, the 1944 and 2013, and they're very tightly woven. And all of the destinies of the characters are tied to this one house. So the house is the same. The neighborhood is the same. And there's a character named Eddie who is the only woman working in a brick pit. There were many brick pits that lined Greenwood Avenue through the 30s and the 40s. And um, she works there. And it's her house, number two condor, that Laura is trying to sell in 2013. The ghost element, I see the book as having counter-realist elements. And what that means to me is that it very much reflects my view of how I see life. Um, I don't experience um, reality to be just facts. For me, there's serendipity and coincidence and magic and uncertainty and mystery, definitely mystery. <laughs> it makes it exciting to write. It makes it exciting when I choose a book to read. But So the ghost for me seems completely an entirely natural fit into an otherwise realist novel. And she's bridging between the two time frames. And so the ghost element for me is really just a way of saying, um, we are here, but we were there. And the future is also now, if that makes any sense. It does. Definitely makes a lot of sense. You've got these um, realist elements with the unreal. Um, Rebecca, your work is nonfiction, a memoir in days of sorts. Um, it's fearless, it's unfiltered, and it kind of reflects how sheltering in place affected the human spirit on a personal and universal level. How is it important to be so candid and free and humorous when writing this book? I think um, the pandemic is really just the end of my ability to filter. Like, I was just too exhausted um, to dissemble anymore. Uh, I was never great at it, but it was really 
comforting to see how much people could embrace that and how we could meet each other where we were. And so maybe something good that came from that is that an increased honesty about how hard it was and that we could be truthful with each other about how we were struggling. And I mean, I came from a place of relative privilege. I was always sheltered, mm. <laughs> always had enough to eat. And yet it was still very hard and we could, we could just be a little bit more honest with each other about how difficult things were. Yeah, so let's talk about that um, privilege. Um, how did the pandemic change how you view privilege or race or class or disability? How did that kind of uh, impact you um, during that time? It's an ongoing project. Uh, I, it's interesting because like all of the membranes became so much thinner and then when I saw somebody struggling, it was never good, but it, it just started to feel so much more connected. Like the whole city just felt so much more connected during the pandemic, ironically, when we were so separated from each other. Mm. And it was just so hard to see how hard it was for others, maybe because I had so much time to think about it, maybe because the pandemic laid bare how broken the system really is and you couldn't ignore it anymore, I'm not sure. Maybe because everything was happening all at once? I don't know, but I, I was really, really devastated by so many things that I maybe before could have been like, oh, that's very bad, and kind of gotten on with the day. Right, right. Uh, Elizabeth, your book is reflective of sorts as well. It kind of crackles with energy in terms of its depiction of loving partners and relationships, particularly LGBTQ relationships. What parallels did you want to make between 2013 and 1944 in terms of love and partnership? That's a great question, and I'm prepared to answer that. But I'd like to answer the question about class, if that's possible. How about it? I think if we're going to talk about shelter, we have to look at the etymology of the word. You know, in Old English, we're talking about the word shield, shelt. And so, and it comes from the battlefields. And so, no language is neutral. When we talk about shelter, we talk about houses, we're talking about class, and we're talking about people's ability to protect themselves from whether it's the elements in my book, uh, homelessness also in my book, the pandemic. And the word house from Old English is from the verb to hide. So if you have a house, if you have four brick walls in a house, then you have a place to hide from the hardship of the world. And so you were asking about the queer element. I work in a very intuitive way where I get to know my characters, I plop them down in a certain environment and then I can watch them move through it. And so um, I'm just really, really lucky that I occupy different identities in life and so I have this lens on life that is multiple and queer is one of those lenses. And so I guess by juxtaposing um, Laura and her partner Kat, who's an architect in the present time, with Eddie and Annie, and Eddie's a brick pit worker in the past, you see that we've always been here, and you see how different things can be now in terms of family, and the whole mystery that sits at the center of the novel is really around Eddie and Annie trying to make home. Uh, so circling back to what I was saying about shelter, the difference between the word shelter and the word house is the word home, which is much broader is not limited by one's ability to pay or buy a condo or a home. Um, home is, you know, maybe uh, someone you love. That's your home. Uh, maybe it's your passion for me writing. Maybe it's yourself, and it's portable, 
and it's free. And so I hope that answers. For sure. Let's go to you, Rebecca. Your book is quirky. There's passages in the book when you relate to your husband, Mark, and those are some of the most funniest and honest and witty parts in the book. Maybe talk about those interactions um, that you had with your partner during the pandemic, sheltering in place. Yeah, everyone likes the Mark passages best. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I spent two years talking almost exclusively to my partner and our cats, and they're not much for banter, so it was mainly me and Mark. Um, and, I mean, I'm just lucky I married someone interesting. You really have to be careful. Um. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and so we did our best to entertain each other because, like, when you live in a high-rise, like, you really are worried about, like, even going down the hall in the elevator, you're going to be exposed to other people. So we didn't even have, like, yard visits or, or that sort of thing for mm. the most part. Elizabeth, let, let's bring you into the conversation. What did you want your book to say about feelings of isolation during trying times? What does the idea of sheltering in place mean for these characters? What I really wanted this book to say was that life is uncertainty and life is change. Um, so I guess what I wanted to say is that it's okay to live with uncertainty. It's okay to um, not know all the answers to things. That's where the mystery and the beauty of life is. And what you lean on is love. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Elizabeth Ruth, the author of the novel Semi-Detached, and Rebecca Rosenblum, the author of the memoir The Days Are Numbered. That conversation was recorded last fall in front of an audience at a partnership event between Diaspora Dialogues and the Toronto International Festival of Authors. I'm joined now by my colleague and Next Chapter contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. He's been busy these months checking out books on the prize circuit, reading nominated books and talking with their authors. That's settling down a bit. So today he's brought us an interview with Jen Ferguson, a young writer for teens who looks to be no slouch in the prize department. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ellie. How's it going? Great. Tell us about Jen Ferguson. Uh, yeah, Ellie. So Jen Ferguson is a powerful and powerhouse writer who defines herself as being of Métis and Canadian settler heritage. Uh, she's also an activist and intersectional feminist. So see, she won the Governor General's Award for her debut adult novel, The Summer of Bitter and Sweet. That was a powerful debut about a young Indigenous woman exploring issues around identity, belonging, and resilience. So her latest is called Those Pink Mountain Nights. It's a YA novel. It's very thoughtful and character-driven, set in Alberta. It's about a 17-year-old Métis teen named Berlin. She works in a pizza parlor. One day she encounters a Indigenous teen named Kiki, someone who's actually been reported missing for months. And the story dives into some heavy topics around race, racism, depression, anxiety, and the plight of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And I had a very interesting chat with Jen about the book and why she wrote it. Thanks for this, Ryan. And now here is Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Jen Ferguson about those Pink Mountain Nights. Jen, how are we doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I want to ask you about your new book. It's called Those Pink Mountain Nights. It's centered around a teen named Berlin. Uh, 
They're of indigenous heritage. They're working at an independent pizza parlor. Um, your previous book was called The Summer of Bitter and Sweet that won the Governor General's Award that year. That was a story about a teen named Lou who was spending the summer working for her family's ice cream shack. So that's ice cream, pizza, lots of food happening here. What's the fascination with food, Jen? What's going on? So I'm a Taurus and uh, we like like beautiful things and we mm. like uh, really great food. And I was thinking about two foods, ice cream and pizza, that tend to uh, maybe not be as bougie or exciting. And I thought, how can we make them both a little bit more high end, but also um, a little bit more exciting and maybe even better for you? Nice. So speaking of bougie, speaking of unique, um, some of the pizza toppings, some of the pizza pies in this parlor are pretty unique in terms of some of the toppings. Um, are these actual pizzas? Um, did you make them up? What's happening here? Uh, so I have to tell you that my first job, I worked at a pizza place. It was a franchise. Mm. I worked at a Panago. Um, <laughs> and my bosses were young, and they had young children. And they kind of left the teenagers of uh, the town I grew up in to run their business for them as you can imagine that yeah. probably wasn't maybe always the smartest thing but what it meant is that i had a lot of creative freedom to play around with ingredients and so that's part of what inspired the book both these tell really compelling stories around teenagers coming of age and better understanding their indigenous identity um so tell me about berlin what, what what's happening here um they're working a part-time job at this pizza parlor it's a legendary local business who is she at the start of the book so at the beginning of the book, um, Berlin has just been sort of ghosted from her best friend, and she doesn't know why. She's also just started this new job about a month ago, and she loves it. Uh, it's a place where her responsibility and her sort of um, her ethics seem to be really well represented by her boss. And uh, she's also sort of recognizing that while she doesn't have typical symptoms of depression or what she thinks is depression, she's having a really hard time connecting with people and she's having a really hard time feeling joy. Mm. So also working at the shop are teens, um, Cameron and Jesse. What's their story and what's their connection to Berlin? Yeah, of course. So uh, Cam has known Berlin since birth. Berlin is Métis and Cam is Cree. And they have never gotten along. The two of them are sort of oil and vinegar. Cam is also uh, someone who laughs at everything in his life, including his traumas. And that irritates Berlin, who is a very serious person. So you mentioned you worked at a store during the summer. Talk, tell me about that dynamic in terms of teens running a store. You mentioned you're pretty much operating on your own without any adult uh, intervention yeah. kind of thing. Tell me that about that dynamic. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about third spaces and what happens when you take a teenager out of their home life. You know, they have to behave a particular way in their home life. Mm. And then they have to behave a particular way in their school life. So I realized I really like telling stories that happen in a third space, like the ice cream shack or like the pizza parlor, because that's one of the places where these teenage characters get to like test their identities 
in a way that is outside of school and home. They get to test the idea of like who they are. Mm. So both of your books, Jen, are set in Alberta. What's your connection to Alberta? Yeah, so I am an army brat uh, and I grew up all over Canada. Mm. I spent some years in Calgary when I was younger. And then I moved to Lloydminster, Alberta, Saskatchewan when I was 15. And I spent grade 10 and 11 there. And... Alberta really got into my psyche. Mm. I don't know if it's like the age I was when I lived there, how when you're you're 15, 16, everything is really foundational. Mm. So when I lived in Lloydminster, one of the the things that I remember really clearly was there was like one black family in town. There were like a couple Asian families in town. It was one of the first places where I saw like really clear anti-Indigenous violence, both in word and action. But it was also the town where um, the oil workers from up north came uh, for their two weeks off. Yeah. Uh, so I like that we're talking about that direction because we're, we're joking around about food and, and what have you and being a teen. But this book really does tackle some serious issues, particularly missing and murdered Indigenous women um, by way of a missing girl in the book named Kiki. Without giving too much away, what is Berlin's connection to this missing girl? Yeah. So Kiki is Cam's cousin and mm. a member of the sort of like broader Indigenous community in Canmore, Alberta, where the book is set. And Berlin was a year younger than Kiki in school. Yeah. So you mentioned Kiki's heritage is Black and Indigenous. What what did you want to explore there? So I really thought it, it was important here to remind readers that there are missing girls whose faces show up Um, on the news whose stories get told over and over again but you're much more likely to be ignored if you are a native missing girl or a black missing girl Mm. and making kiki both native and black um highlighted the the disparity of of her value to the policing community or to the media community. Mm. So thinking of your own heritage, how did you want to explore Kiki's heritage? You go into some themes like anti-Black racism, Indigenous racism. Right. What what did you want to kind of dig into or unpack? So uh, my first book, The Summer of Bitter and Sweet, is really about a kind of, of racism that most like woke white people can point to and be like, aha, it's it's there, I see mm-hmm. it. And I wanted to explore something different in those Pink Mountain Nights. I was really thinking about the kind of violence that minority communities do to each other, yeah. which is something that um, when I was handing this book around in its early stages to friends who were BIPOC or queer or disabled, Uh, they could like see what was happening really clearly. They're like, oh, of course, yes, this is a thing that happens in minority communities. And your work, Jen, often revolves around the concept of resilience. What does that word mean for these characters in the book? Yeah, I I have a difficult relationship with resilience. So I think that a lot of a lot of Native people, uh, we've sort of like clung to that word as 
um, a word to mean strength, that like we are strong because we are in, we are resilient in face of all of these things uh, that try to take us down or try to make us invisible or try to harm us. And I've thought a lot about this. And for me, I keep thinking that resilience is a short-term coping strategy. Mm. It shouldn't be how you have to live your life. Yeah. And I think about that a lot as well, just being who I am and, and, and what I do. Like I'm all often talking about this book is about identity and belonging right. <laughs> and resilience, but these aren't like discrete elements. They're like no. very integrated that you have to unpack and, and, and navigate. Um, how do you do that, particularly in the YA context? Yeah. So I think that that one of the things about a YA novel that I've decided for myself is that if I'm going to write for teens, I have to be willing to write uh, hope and joy into a story, even when it's a story about like the real life hard things that today's teens are going through. Mm. It's something if you spend a lot of time around teenagers that you'll notice about their ways of being in the world. And that is teens can be going through like the hardest things. And yet there will still be moments where you will catch a group of them just like uproariously laughing mm. over mm. the silliest thing. I think when we become adults, we become more conservative in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is we like don't let joy and uh, hope into our lives in the same way anymore. And also like maybe where I have hope or maybe my way of practicing hope is that I, I'm writing for teenagers. And so that is like my hopeful offering that I still think that the world has possibility and change and betterment in the hands of young people. I love that. And I, I love how you take on the YA form and you're diving to heavy topics such as race, racism, depression, anxiety. But ultimately, you're writing about these teens who are coming of age, deciding who they want to be. Um, exactly. So I'm, really, I'm really loving that. Jen, thanks for the conversation. That was Ryan B. Patrick speaking with Jen Ferguson about her new YA novel, Those Pink Mountain Nights. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. My thanks this week to Emily Chiarvesio and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Christine Estima on her linked short story collection, The Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society. And yes, that society did exist in 1930s Montreal. And Christine's stories explore her own family's roots in that city. And our contributor Ryan B. Patrick revisits an interview with Kai Thomas. Kai's debut novel, In the Upper Country, won the Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize last month. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.